I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate it, that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Ara Katz and Raja Deer are the co-founders of the probiotic company Seed. Ara's breastfeeding experience led her to research the microbiome and inspired a personal mission to explore the importance of microbes and how they can impact the health of our bodies, our children, and our planet. A serial entrepreneur, Ara previously co-founded and served as the CMO of Spring, mobile commerce marketplace, as well as six direct-to-consumer influencer subscription brands. Raja is a life sciences entrepreneur and leads Seed's research and development, academic collaborations, technology development, clinical trial design, supply chain, and intellectual property strategy. Raja has a unique expertise in translating scientific research for product development with a track record that includes patented inventions to stabilize sensitive compounds to improve alpha diversity of the gut microbiome. I mean, come on. Together, they created the revolutionary company Seed with its science and research-backed symbiotic as the broad strain probiotic and prebiotic that is completely 
changed my digestion from the minute I started taking it. So before I forget, if you want to give it a try, use the code BEWELLBYKELLY at checkout and you'll get 20% off your first month. All right, Raja, welcome back to the show. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I feel horrible that your corrupt file was going to be the first podcast I ever released. And then it was unsalvageable because the only person that we recorded was me. My bad. Which would would probably be great content, Kelly. (laughs) Just just questions (laughs) without answers. Just blank spaces. It'll be the first interactive podcast ever for you to fill in the blanks yourself. (laughs) It sort of feels like the internet nowadays. (laughs) Uh, Well, I appreciate you guys being so kind with uh, my technology issues. And thank you for spending another hour with me. I think that the research you guys are doing and the seed probiotic that I take that I love and the research behind it, I really want people to know about. So thank you for spending the time with me and coming back. Thank you for having us back. Thanks for giving us a second try. Yeah. Well, let's start from the beginning. Ara, I know you first got interested in the microbiome and, its re- and the research around it while you were breastfeeding. Can you kind of talk about that discovery and what led you to found seed? Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly have built and, and always kind of worked at the intersection of health and or of tech and, and storytelling and design and always knew I wanted to be in health in some way. And really it was my experience both getting, well, having a miscarriage, getting pregnant, meeting Raja while I was pregnant, having a very long founder dating period. And then through breastfeeding, I think that, you know, those moments for me were all both formative, I think existentially in my own journey and things I wanted to create and find meaning and and put out in the world. But also I think the, the, the kind of person from a tech perspective, you know, where, where you look for these kind of big zero to one or first principles ideas. I think that I had really watched, I think the rise of wellness. And I thought it was extraordinary how it was changing everybody's like consciousness about their bodies. And of course, you, you no one knows that better than you. But what I also felt uh, was that it was really moving away from the science. And I thought the language was starting to uh, it was starting to become a, a field of marketing and not one of change and, and deep impact. And what I felt was really going to make change and help in the bigger picture. And the microbiome was really, you know, for me, I started to learn about the role of microbes, not just for my, in my body, but also um, the formative role that they were going to play for uh, my child um, and how my microbes were going to impact that child, which I'm sure we'll get into and where our namesake of seed came from, which is the seeding process. But it really, you know, the more you understand microbes, you, you start to learn there's these 38 trillion non-human parts of us that live in and on us. And that they, you know, three to five pounds of our body that we like basically up until now did not understand, know, didn't know what they did. And if anything, I think we've always been taught to understand and think that bacteria or microbes were bad. And so the idea that they're formative, that they're going to define my child's like GI and immune system, part of his health journey through life, that they, I can't do certain things in my body without them. And then of course, you know, we'll, we'll get into all the other ways and things that they do to me was that like zero to one. It was like that new framework or lens that I thought, oh, wow, I could wake up every day. And certainly with a co-founder, when you hear Raja speak, it will become self-evident that is such an extraordinary scientific mind and a way of like translating that to products and things that could, interventions that could really impact health. And my, my experience, it felt like, I was almost like compelled, you know, it was like, it was a field that I felt every day I could wake up and I'd, I'd learn something new, but also felt we could make a tremendous impact, not just with our research and science, but also 
with the education and the lens that you could give people to see their bodies differently. I love that. Taking it so much more seriously than what was the norm at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and and really looking at the research. And I think that's why when we sat down so long ago, before Body Love even came out, and I made the recommendation to to look at seed as a probiotic. And I made some probiotic recommendations based on Raja's education and knowledge, just imparting, imparting that on me and learning more than I ever thought was possible. But I just... I think you've taken it seriously. The company's taken it seriously. And I couldn't be more grateful for that, first of all, and for the product you guys have put out. So Raja, can you tell me a little bit about your founder's story? I mean, we we geeked out over Butyrate the first time we met and that was really fun. <laughs> but your knowledge of the microbiome goes so much deeper than mine ever has and probably ever will. So you are you are the expert and the resource I lean on when it comes to my learnings and having a greater understanding of the microbiome. Well, well, I stand on giant shoulders, so to speak. It, you know, this this field is like it's so it, it progressed so quickly over such a short period of time, and it drew from so many different disciplines of science and medicine. That my knowledge is a proxy of the brain forest, as we call it. That we're fortunate see, to surround ourselves around. But the the first. My, my first brush with microbiome was actually a paper that came out in 2006 that showed that when you transplanted the microbiome from an obese mouse to a lean mouse and, and back to the other, that not only did the, were there changes in metabolism, but later work showed that there's even changes now in the immune system in the production of neuroactive metabolites. Like One fact that I like to share in my origin story was the fact that about over half of the metabolites in your bloodstream, so if you just like take a blood sample and run it through mass spec. After a course of antibiotics, you can't map the same blood sample back to the individual because so much of your gut bacteria has been altered and the production levels of those metabolites are so different that you have a hard time just telling from a blood sample which human was which human. You can't mix them up again. And so obviously things like that in my career and and in my areas of academic and personal interest, I've been drawn to these things that that first look at systems. And then second is that if what they work on is true, it changes virtually everything that we know. Um, and it, it's a grandiose statement, but there are, there are several examples of this. And most of them are in the life sciences where, you know, one, one good example is like when we learned that that cancer was a mutation of, of part of a mutation of just cell replication rather than any sort of infection or, or anything else. Like those types of things, they spawn entire new fields that you can ride all the way all the way to shore. So when I met Ara, I was uh, I found a counterpart in both our pursuit of information and knowledge as well as the ability to synthesize and put together what we believe to be the right voices so that the process dictates and drives to a great result and outcome. And um, when you find someone that you think you could work with in that way and you're you're wildly passionate about the same things, though you come at it from a little bit of a different place, you find such bountiful areas of of work and, and such meaning. And so when we started the company, we one thing that was very different in our approach was that a lot of the companies and even a lot of the academic labs at the time were what we call really single technology or single platform type of companies. So maybe they're focusing on they're a cosmetics company that wanted to make a better skincare product or and they heard the microbiome was this hot new thing. And so they tried to figure out what was going on or and that's giving that's giving some companies too much credit. Other ones just take dead bacteria called lysates that have no business being on the skin and 
just use it for marketing to trick people and take their money. Um, you know, th- there's 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 other uh, spinouts that were coming from academia at that time. And when R and I took a half step back, we saw such an opportunity to pull together and past the point of a lot of this academic discovery and characterization of the mechanisms, how they work. I'm obsessed about these mechanisms. And then bring them, accelerate their path. It's called translation, accelerate their path to um, whatever that application may be. There's some areas in women's health where they're regulated as FDA approved drugs. And so we have to go through FDA regulatory processes. And there's some where we're able to generate enough data that they can be consumer health products. And there's some that are topical and there's some that are in oral hygiene and some that are in infant care. And our pipeline is getting bigger and bigger. But that overall thesis of how do we work with and accelerate research across a wide variety of ecosystems in the body is something that we, we said then and still remains true today. I love that. You guys definitely did it differently. You can't, I think a lot of times when someone wants to start a probiotic company, it's you know, they're going to go out and say like, well, how can I license strains from someone or put together my own brand? And you guys did it differently. Like you specifically selected your strains. And can you talk about the process of actually creating seed and the probiotic that I take every day? Absolutely. So a couple of things at the time, most probiotics in the market, even some that were multi-strain, like you saw some products available at supermarket shelves where they would just take every species, regardless of whether there's research behind it that can be grown and then just put it all in one and then just make like diversity claims. But we we did a lot of... So strain banking is a process that we actually take quite seriously. So it's um, generating fully circular and closed genomes of every strain looking through those genomes for what information we can get, mobile elements, virulence factors, um, metabolites that they produce. We then bank those strains at the American Type Culture Collection. We have some strains that we bank in Germany as well. And then from there, we really look at building consortia or building ecologies. And so in this case, you know, the product DSO-1 or the Daily Symbiotic, we've, having been in a company for so long, we still only have one product and one offering on the market as we go through that data process for for more. And we started first by putting them... There are three features that we looked for that were critical in the development of the product. So the first was a a very interesting model that is used to measure response to oxidative stress and inflammation in the gut. It looks at transcription factors. And so in particular, we were looking for an effect on a specific pathway called the NRF2 pathway. And that's what regulates the host's like glutathione response to oxidative stress and, and infl- inflammatory byproducts more broadly. The second is that we're, uh, which was what prompted us to talk about butyrate in our first, first sit down in a coffee shop, um, <laughs> is that we were very, very keen to quantify the short chain fatty acids that are produced by our organisms. And so we ran multiple assays and different types and different combinations and response to different media to try to see what short-chain fatty acids we're making and then how do we map those short-chain fatty acids to biological processes that we know to be really good. And the third is that obviously people have, probably your listeners have heard a lot about the, it's called leaky gut, but it's really a form of barrier disintegrity where you have continuous assault on intestinal epithelial cells and slow recovery time. And that's a one cell thick layer. So if that's not working very well, you have some issues. And so we, we looked for a tight junction protein expression, which is the marker. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Our probiotics also induce spontaneous <laughs> sneezing. <laughs> I got it. I got it under control. 
And this is just, you're looking at the exact protein that's responsible for that stitching, right? That intercellular stitching um, between those cells. And so I think we're just starting to scratch the surface on how important that really is. Like it, it, it follows logically that if things are entering into your bloodstream that, sh- that are not ordinarily or shouldn't be there, that we understand why that can cause issues down the road. I think some people take it too far on the other side. They say leaky gut's the cause of everything on earth. I mean, no, the body's resilient. It can handle, handle some of these areas, but consistent chronic uh, you know, infiltration of molecules, especially inflammatory ones like LPS. LPS, yeah, yeah. lipopolysaccharides. And are you talking the protein you're talking about, zonulin? Zonulin is the uh, tight junction proteins are related to zonulin occludins. And so they're, two, they're part of the same uh, expression system. Yeah. And Kelly, I would just add to the, you know, part of, you know, from a, from a, almost like a, a more the, the human kind of the person taking it's perspective. I think one of the things that we really set out to do with both seed, but also the DSO1 and daily symbiotic that Raj was speaking about, which is today still our only, um, our only product was really also, you know, and, and to your point about a lot of the noise that is out there, right? It was, it was really to say like, what is probably the most advanced or sophisticated formulation that could exist today based on strains that had like really robust and, and the, the appropriate evidence base to substantiate inclusion. And really what Raja said to say, like going beyond just kind of the gut and, and, and particularly like the localized benefit of digestion, what are these other areas? Some of them very close, like uh, gut immune, immune function or, or gut barrier integrity and kind of beyond. And so to look at it a bit more like systemically and to also be a, a little bit also of a, of a, of a marker for, to understand that probiotics can have an impact beyond just that localized digestive benefit. Um, and certainly to, to also for us to be able to be really forward thinking in the, the, both the clinical research, the, the evidence base that we require for a strain to be included, allow us to also build on that research. I think you know that we have an IBS trial underway at Harvard. Uh, we have three, or, three other trials we can speak about with antibiotic recovery uh, with post-alcohol use, for example, and also for constipation. And so really to say like, you know, there are both between the testing, the the validation, the clinical work, the strain inclusion, and then of course the delivery system, which I think is one of the most interesting and in, in, in areas that we're very proud of, which is, you know, it's not, it's not just the, the strains, um, but it also is some of the de- delivery technology um, that not just allows us to demonstrate the survivability for the GI tract, but also to be able to uh, make sure that our microbes stay stable. Where a lot of companies, I think, put the onus on the the customer um, by making you kind of giving you this idea that somehow if you refrigerate it, it's better or uh, or whatever. And so I think that there there was this kind of wanting to create like what we believe was one of the best you know pro- products that are on the market. Definitely, I think I was so surprised when we first sat down so long, so many years ago, was learning that um, there are a number of probiotic formulations that include probiotics that aren't innately human. And that just because something is fermented and contains probiotics, it might not necessarily be beneficial to the system. Can you touch on um, the differences that you might see on the market in regards to the formulation being innately human, the delivery system, the refrigeration belief, kind of at a deeper level? Yeah, and and it, there's a lot of there's a lot of strains that remain unproven. I mean, back then people are still uh, surprised that there's multiple strains of the same species. When it comes to women's health, just to show you how to underscore the, or punctuate this point, it wasn't until the chief scientist of our women's health division last year published his gene catalog 
Did people even believe that there was multiple strains that make up species representation in the vagina? And it, it's, you know, like, so there's enormous complexity and strain, strain distinctions matters. Where you deliver it in the body matters. Whether all of those strains stay alive and intact at the time of delivery or if there's cannibalization matters. And then, of course, the total net output of those strains matters as well. So um, it's why when we run experiments in like the Shime system, which is a simulator of the human intestinal microbial ecosystem, you actually look at it, how it recovers or rescues after perturbations in a whole microbial transplant. Because then you want to see, well, once it's made it through digestion, what is it then doing inside your gut microbiome? And there's just so much of that that is unproven and understudied in commercial products. When it comes to native origin species, sure, maybe there'll be some organisms that are outside of the, the body that could have therapeutic utility, but for the most part, it's better defined. There's a, there's a co-evolutionary basis for native human strains. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some residual benefits you can, you can find in some cultures. Like I know that there's strains that are found on, on a flower that are pretty beneficial. There are um, some that are actually native in not all, but in very few sauerkrauts, like a strain of plantarum that replicate and they actually feed off of that starch within the, the cabbage itself that can be beneficial. But the question is always beneficial for what? So sure, those might be beneficial in terms of just stool pH regulation, but would you want? Would you expect those strains to have bidirectional communication with through the gut skin axis? Probably not. And so you always have to know what you're looking for, right? Like, our, we have a cardiovascular strain that helps to regulate the ratio between HDL and LDL cholesterol, and it does it by stopping cholesterol reuptake. And it does it because that strain, okay, that strain actually makes the same bile salt hydrolase that your body makes. So these mechanisms are so important. You have to like, like each strain, we know intimately what they do, what because we've, we've peeked under the hood and looked at their whole genomes. And it's just that, that aware, it's just, it's not, I don't want the takeaway to be that like everything's shit, but it's just that the bar needs to be so much higher in terms of what, what it is that you're validating. What are you trying to accomplish? What can someone expect to benefit from it? And that to us is considered product quality. Now, the delivery question is separate because you could have great strains and there's some debate. I'll, I'll censor my position. I don't want to say that a strain has to always be alive to be efficacious. There's some very early data that says that the cell wall, when the body detects it, can still have some benefit. But if you want those strains to get benefit through metabolism, through producing something, doing something, being involved in interspecies competition, like if you want there to be competitive inhibition or com- competition for binding for binding sites like then you need those strains to be alive right and the argument then follows that alive is still better than dead because the same benefit you'd get with with the strain being cell wall still happens when it's alive and so there's no real case i can build for why you don't want as many of these organisms alive as possible in the upper small intestines that's super important and so we went through almost 18 months of R&D cycling on building two a dual polymer capsule system. We started with one with a commercial partner and had to end up building our own because the uh, media, that the solvent that they were using in the secondary capsule wasn't giving us post-small intestines strong, as strong of data as post-small intestines. It was 94%. Now we're at 100. And so this is, a, it's, it's just very important, right? Because and I'd flip the script on people that are shopping, trying to find the best probiotic is just ask companies for their 
data comparing there's just even if they're not comparing it, which we did against 14 other off-the-shelf products, just ask them for their own data that shows that it has resistance to stomach acid, bile salts, and digestive enzymes, and what percent. You get the <laughs> runaround. They'll, they'll, no one will literally answer people's questions. Yeah. That's because they have they're not proud of the result or they haven't done they haven't done the research. Would you have to have that data to public to produce a product? Survivability? The, oh, you don't have to, the, the, you don't have to do anything. No regulation, yeah. There's no regulation. Not in the US. In, in the EU, uh, in the EU, it would be different because you can't use the term probiotic in the same way. It's a, it's a tightly regulated term that has a much greater burden of evidence than it does in the US. In the US, uh, apparently, according to Amazon, one could own probiotic pillowcases, tortilla chips, chocolate bars, uh, pajamas, home cleaning products, and probably anything else on your Amazon list if you search for it with the search term <laughs> of it plus probiotics. Uh, grown. Uh, and that is because uh, there's no regulatory around the term in the US. Let's take a minute and talk about wine. Wine is an ancient fermented drink. It was first enjoyed over 8,000 years ago. And when wine is nationally made, it contains only two ingredients, organic grapes and native yeast. These natural wines are vibrant and full of life with yeast, bacteria, and colorful compounds that can have an impact on your health. Unfortunately, the majority of U.S. wines are not like this. Three giant wine companies sell over 50% of the U.S. wine, and there are over 70 legally approved additives in wine, including dyes, flavoring, thickeners, sterilizers, GMO yeast, and toxic chemicals like dimethyl dicarbonate. That's why I personally use and always recommend Dry Farm Wines. Dry Farm Wines is the world's premier source of natural wine, and they go a step further in screening all their wines to be organically and biodynamically grown. Dry farmed meaning no irrigation, sugar-free, additive-free, lower in alcohol, and grown on small family farms. This makes them friendly to a keto, paleo, and vegan lifestyle, and I just love that they're tested for purity. If you drink wine at home or you're the kind of person that takes a bottle to your local restaurant, head to dryfarmwines.com forward slash be well by Kelly. Dry Farm Wines is going to throw in an extra bottle in your first box for only a penny. I promise if you try it, you'll love it. Raja, can you walk me through some of the research and clinical trials for seed. I know you're the lead in research and development and you guys have the IBS trial, the antibiotic recovery trial, an alcohol trial, some constipation trial. You touched on the fact that one of the strains was great for cardiovascular health. Can, can, can you share some of the research and the findings with symbiotic? Yeah, I'll start with some of the more exotic ones. So of course, the cholesterol one we just talked about, which is uh, actually, actually it's a regulation of Technically, people call it the gut-heart axis, but it's more the liver. And so this is just a, you know, I think the jury is obviously still out on whether dietary cholesterol is bad. I don't think it is. But elevated levels of VLDL and LDL are still considered by cardiology today to not be beneficial. It's just not clear that eating cholesterol raises your LDL and VLDL levels. And so this is a strain which works to regulate that reuptake. So when the cholesterol gets reabsorbed, your own cholesterol that your body produces, does less of it gets absorbed back up in a way that tilts things in a positive favor. And so that was one trial. There's a second trial on that that showed the same, a very, very similar effect and actually had some more interesting 
you know, data on triglycerides as well, but that's, that trial just wrapped up and hasn't been published yet. Another uh, strain has a fascinating uh, ability to actually pump out vitamin B12. I mean, this thing goes like it's, <laughs> it's, it's really built. It's, it synthesizes vitamin B12 like it's a full time job and it does it more than contro- any other control strains of the same species and also compared to many, many, many other strains. And so now the caveat to this is that we've characterized this genomically, we've characterized this in vitro, we've characterized this in animal model. It's too hard, or so far we've struggled with the confounders on measuring B- B12 levels because they are variable and beyond. And so that's my like alert non human data. Signify, <laughs> yeah. um, but we know that these strains are really pumping it out, and then we're also looking actually right now at biotin as well because no one's really looked at that before. But we believe that we believe that it's also sharing some of that effort. Let's see what else we have. We have a couple strains that were in that NRF two expression model uh, that I shared with you. We had some that that came from a two hundred person trial on uh, five outcomes of gastrointestinal health, transit time, stool consistency, stool hydration ease of expulsion, anal itching. Alexa, I'll pause. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just picturing the, the uh, Labrador retriever I grew up with rubbing <laughs> her butt on the carpet. I'm glad that's your image. I think a lot of other people go to other places. So I'm just ha- happy for such a wholesome uh, allu- allusion. <laughs> Very wholesome. wholesome content. And then, yes, of the, of the trials that we have right now, we're looking at things like antibiotic recovery and a new trial right now that just kicked off on alcohol, ethanol response, recovery of the gut microbiome after alcohol consumption, um, IBS at Harvard, chronic uh, constipation defined as four or less weekly bowel movements and normalization of that. And a lot, I mean, the, there's, there's a lot more I think that are still in development, but those are the big ones right now that at least had strong enough data to push into into our own human clinical trials. Well, I would say personally, from my side of things, when I have a client who struggles with constipation, it's always my first line of defense because a lot of times they've started to incorporate more fiber, leafy greens, or looking at their hydration. And if we still are just having an issue with it, most of the time that completely clears up my issue. Well, Kelly, I'll, I'll, I'll share something. I'll share some really interesting research studies. So. Uh, actually, there was a group in Singapore that tried to evaluate whether fiber was beneficial for constipation. And so you think it'd be very obvious. It's the first line of defense. It's, it's, it's what most people recommend. They think of it, they, they want bulking. Um, they maybe then try to address increasing stool hydration. But actually, they found that a dramatic increase in fiber intake made the distension and the pain associated with constipation worse. Mm-hmm. That's because most recalcitrant constipation isn't a result of people not like... That's like class one, right? It's like people that eat processed foods, like eat more fiber and you can push things through. But most people that struggle with constipation, it's, it has a, it's an engagement with the nervous system. And so all you're doing, you still have a dysregulation of the release valve but all you're doing is now just filling up, backlogging the chamber more with more bulk. And so it actually results in an increase. And so that's why probiotics are an interesting approach because there is there is engagement in the stimulation of you know, motor neurons and intest- for regard- related to intestinal transit time. It, there's a stimulatory effect there. So um, it's, it's, it's not surprising, but it's counterintuitive to what, what we may have thought. 
So what's the like, is there a specific strain that helps with transit time and that mechanism of action or like No, I mean we're we're testing this on the whole company. I don't think that we it's too hard to tease out what that one stimulus would be. And so we're our goal is that we just can can have an effective intervention rather than now be able to deconstruct because it's not about deconstructing the genomes of the strains in our product. Now it's about answering the question about what actually is dysregulated in constipation. And that's like a basic an academic question that's we'll we'll probably still take. <laughs> we'll take up the whole podcast. <laughs> awesome. Can you talk because you guys uh, obviously are putting out a lot of information on the microbiome and how it's impacted not only by the daily symbiotic symbiotic, but by people's everyday lives. What are some things that have an impact on the microbiome? I know you mentioned alcohol. What's what's the disruption of the microbiome after a night out drinking? I again I'll respond with very specific data. After four to we challenged the model with four to seven shots of Grey Goose vodka and we saw pretty significant disruptions. I think some people at some stages in life probably do more. Europeans definitely do more. I heard about I heard about some people in Europe that are, it's totally normalized to drink like four or five drinks. Each one is like that much alcohol in an evening sitting. There's that, that's, I think, a, for Americans, that's a lot, but I think that there's, that's a fair representation of consumption, alcohol consumption, one or two times per week in some parts of Europe, China, Korea, and uh, Russia. Russia. For sure. <laughs> After alcohol, antibiotics, everybody certainly knows. Some things people might not know is that dysregulated circadian rhythms, so disruptive sleep, pharmaceutical compounds, including birth control, antidepressants, even non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Tylenol, diet, nutrition, exercise, behavior, whether you have a dog in the house. Artificial sweeteners. Artificial (laughs) sweeteners that are, are highly bacteriostatic. So that might be a new term for people. It means that they just stop bacterial growth. So what artificial sweeteners are showing to stop bacterial growth? Uh, there were six of them. I don't remember which one, but it's uh, aspartame. I mean, it's your usual suspect. It was, it was not the... Probably not a lot of the ones that you... I'm curious if it's non-nutritive, like stevia, monk fruit, or if it's aspartame and all of it, like equal, sweet and low, those kind of like yeah. diets. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Well, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper. Um, what are some of the ties between our health, the health of our microbes and our immunity? I mean, I always like to bring up an interesting concept here, which is that the child is born inflamed. Aza, who used to, who Aza taught, like was an immunologist, was an immunologist in her academic career, and she was very passionate about this point. And it, it never really sunk with me until I really thought about what that means for immunity, and it completely changes the way you think about immunity. And so, you're born thinking everything's a threat, and then the aspect, the part of the the immune system developing is an exercise in tolerance. And so I'm sure that your mind's reeling with metaphors, but like uh, you train your immune system that through continuous exposure, that something is not a threat. And that process begins with microbes, right? Like a poor exposure to microbial diversity or mode of delivery or lack of breastfeeding, which doesn't give those carbohydrates that those microbes need early on. Um, or over sanitization or antibiotic usage from an early age are huge risk factors in dysregulated immune system function for the entire life of a child. And so the relationship between, I think the biggest window for intervention is that earliest window of development, but throughout life, it's involved in the immune system. 
actually one of our former collaborators is uh, Dennis Casper, who's over at Harvard. And he published the mechanism on the role that the microbiome actually plays directly in regulating immunity, right? And through T regulatory cells and, and, and how, how either the bacteria themselves or sometimes just the outer membrane vesicles can be involved. And then that's, of course, before you even think about the microbiome and dysregulation or in states of cancer. So this will literally blow your mind. You can turn non-responders of cancer therapy into responders by changing their transplanting their microbiome. One of the organisms in those studies, which is elevated in healthy responders, are, 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 is of the bifidobacterium species. And of course, some strains of bifidobacterium are, that are human-derived are available you know, as commensal organisms that are, and many of them are in our product. And so not to say that like overshoot what the scope, what, what that could mean, but I'm saying that these are well-characterized species that are showing clear patterns in responders versus non-responders um, to certain types of therapy. And so there's, the, the microbiome is deeply involved in that. And then even more crazy was a conference that I sat in at and someone sh- said, showed data that the, an oral bacteria, Fusobacterium nucleatum, and actually someone who's joining us, a, a, a new person that's joining our team for the bioinformatics background, specialized in this organism. And it is always there more... If you have colon cancer and you look back in the, in the tumor, this guy's there. And so it's more or less associated with the progression of cancer tumor genesis when it starts in the colon and then when it metastasizes and moves to other parts of the body, you still see that organism at the base. Wow. So it's a big loaded question on the role of the microbiome and immunity. You know, we're starting to see that. Probiotics in some ways, I mean, we're just scratching the surface. Like the product that we sell is, is working to locally regulate gut immunity. And we, we're seeing if, there's, if that can push into something beyond. But everything I just described is research that will be through the clinic in the next 10 years that in our lifetime, we'll have access to the opposite side of it. So if nothing else, it's just, I just want to underscore how exciting of a time it is in the field right now. And, and uh, Kelly, I would also just mention that like, well, I think one of the things, and you know this from your involvement with us in, in terms of where our pipeline's heading to is that, you know, Raj is speaking specifically and certainly probably most impactfully about the gut microbiome today. But when you think about the immune system uh, and you think about how microbes play a role in the different ecosystems of our body as it relates to processing the external world and other information stressors, uh, certainly that that training that Raj is talking about, you, you can also start to include and think about like what we are starting to understand and characterize about the oral microbiome, about the skin microbiome. And then of course, I think you, you know <clears throat> about our work in the vaginal microbiome too, um, which different maybe then directly the immune system question you were asking, but it is interesting and, and important to just underscore for your community and audience that like, you know, we were speaking about the gut microbiome, uh, but that there are other microbiomes and the modulation of those um, and, and the role that they play uh, in determining how our body responds to the world uh, is, is important. And obviously fields that are not just unfolding in science, but you know, your, your community is probably already starting to see the tsunami of messages around skin microbiomes, skin probiotics, skin care, probiotic toothpaste, things like that. And so it's an interesting time to obviously be, be not just looking at the gut, but of course, these other ecosystems too, and, and, and certainly some of the interconnectivity that will start to 
understand. Well, you guys always start with research and I love that. I love that no matter what product you're developing, it's really in collaboration with the studies, with the, the lead scientists who are going, who are diving into these different types of microbiome. So I'd love for you to explain some of the findings and some of the excitement coming our way in your pipeline in regards to these other microbiomes and what we can expect. So next we're we're launching a formulation that's developed for children, pediatric formulation. And um, it rides on the back of a very large study wrapped up last year at the end of last year and is under review for publication right now on the role of two organisms, two strains in airway allergy and reducing the severity of airway crises and response. And so obviously that's a very novel mechanism, but there's very other strong data in this and a a clinical trial underway right now in constipation, digestive health, time in the toilet, stool consistency, your whole panel of outcomes in children. And I think especially with children that maybe pickier eaters, that's going to be helpful for for parents to kind of you know, supplement irregular bowel movements and digestive health. And then some of the other areas we're working on is we were just at a very high level, you know, we are doing a lot of work in the oral microbiome. You know, most people are pretty shocked when they find out that that dental cavities are the most common bacterial infection in the world or that they are a bacterial infection. And it's really just that there's genes involved in a class of bacteria in your mouth that pump out acids that just slowly degrade your enamel. And a combination of that and oral hygiene results in poor acid production. But I mean, I brush twice a day and floss one to two times per day. Um, but I know that humans for most of time did not or have even have access to those types of oral hygiene. Uh, fun story, one of our advisors went to go for three weeks to live with the Amerindian populations in Venezuela and um, try to live exactly like them, eat what they ate, use their hygiene practices, to habitate and colonize the space built environment that they made the way that they did. But the one thing she couldn't do was skip brushing, not brush her teeth. But really kind of like some of the interesting stuff in oral microbiome is that, well, there are microbes which are naturally protective or that silence those parts or that work through a couple of different ways. And so on the one hand, we work in a system that's directly involved in silencing the acid production and then one that actually works to clear out the base uh, substrates that those bacteria need to produce acid. So a multifaceted approach for that. Next is the skin microbiome. I mean, I'm sure that I, all I would say is to really just stay stay tuned for this stuff because there's it's all the rage right now in in a global industry, which is a trillion dollar industry. But the either incorrect labeling of probiotics because they're not live organisms, or the positioning of products as beneficial for the skin microbiome, despite not understanding the skin microbiome very well um, is something which is a little bit offensive to the people that do that work. So we work with UCLA, we work with Cleveland Clinic, we work with the NIH and our, we have advisors at all three of these places in our skin microbiome track. And we'll be bringing one of the first, to our knowledge, the first native skin organism as a topical probiotic with a very, very well-defined mechanism of action for Downregulating the inflammatory response in the skin and tons of data behind it. Three trials right now are going on for that. Um, Would that be in support of obviously calming uh, skin inflammation, but things like eczema, psoriasis? Like, where? What are these trials and specifically? Eczema and psoriasis, I would say, is a little bit different because that's Staph aureus, and so there's going to be tons of approaches that are more targeted for eczema from microbiome in the next two or three years. 
our organism is better for two things. So first is like an inflammation that it, it a nodule or an inflammatory lesion is a is a different dysregulation than a lack of barrier integrity or hydration. And so they're a little bit on the other side. So if you tend to even occasional blemishes or redness or that type of a of a, a cascade, right? There's certain phylotypes that are more conducive to that on the skin than others. And so calming that down through the production of antimicrobial peptides and very novel ones at that. So uh, a cool, very cool mechanism of action and two publications underway right now for that. And then also, you know, it works by reducing the load of metabolites that also cause oxidative stress to the skin. So even people that just would want to experience benefits of like, I'm pretty sure most people are aware of the theory that continuous assault of the skin progresses and results in increased cell turnover. And, um, you know, we're doing experiments like this head to head against tretinoin because we have the hypothesis that retinols actually prematurely age the skin. So you're borrowing from the future for the present. You're inducing this rapid cell proliferation, but we're not sure yet if you're causing stem cell differentiation or not. If you're just making sister cells, then it's less offensive. But I mean, if we find out that there's parental stem cell proliferation as a result of retinol use, I mean, Beverly Hills will break. Sorry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, keep me posted. I'm not using retinols. I'm breastfeeding and I'm pregnant every time you talk to me. So (laughs) it's not a problem over here, but it is, um, it'd be interesting to find out for sure. Let's head back to the daily symbiotic before we head into um, your approach on sustainability and how you guys approach sharing information with the world, which I think is really novel and responsible. <laughs> so if someone does decide, okay, you know, I have slow transit time, I have, I deal with constipation, maybe I'm drinking a lot, or I've been on antibiotics or been diagnosed with IBS, like I'm going to go give this a try. When should they take it? How should they take it? Does time of day matter? Just so they can get out there and get going with it. If they're like, this sounds like I need it, this product in yeah. my life. <laughs> Super simple. We tested survivability during both fed and fasted states, as well as in varying uh, macronutrient ratios. And so uh, fasted is ideal. So if it's possible, that could be before bed or it could be first thing in the morning. But at least if you eat it with food, at least eating it 10 to 15 minutes before you start the food rather than at the tail end of it. If you have stomach sensitivity issues, it's not the end of the world. Eat your food and then take it afterwards, but try to see if you can tolerate it in a fasted state first. Okay. Great. Um, and then when it comes to when it comes to your approach on sustainability, which is something I've loved because like the packaging itself, I'm pretty sure is completely compostable. <laughs> Tell me about what seeds approaches to the environment I know and and a little bit about your bees if you can. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I think Kelly, you know this from the beginning, and of course you know this from like even just a little bit of understanding of, you know, any of these ecosystems and, you know, you can't really, and I I think this past year has certainly shown all of us and particularly with climate change, all of us that, you know, we can't really look at the, at these things as just human problems. Um, You know, everything is truly connected, particularly when you start to look at the natural world and our our place in it. um, And certainly where I think some of the 
greatest shifts have to come. So, you know, part of our, our work in understanding how you could take microbes to improve health is not just for humans, but also for environmental. And so in, in addition to that, and we'll get into kind of a couple of those programs and share maybe one of our new ones that we're going to announce in early May with you. But, you know, part of that, of course, is also looking at some of these areas that companies, where companies can be great, great the biggest offenders. Um, and while seed is certainly not one of the largest carbon emitters and certainly not at the scale of, of fossil fuel burning that most big, a lot of big companies are, you know, packaging is an area where I think there's particularly a lot of greenwashing and also where you can you can really start to to create movements and ripple effects that actually do impact some of the bigger companies because it starts to get consumers really caring, not just about what's in the product, but what it comes in. And what that does is it forces a lot of the bigger companies to start to pay attention to that. And so we really scour the world looking for all kinds of unique biomaterials, um, sustainable materials. We have a refill system. So you get one glass jar. Um, and then after that, and also a, a little glass travel vials to, to replace kind of the single-use plastic bags. I think a lot of people sometimes use when they travel. And then uh, every month you get this compostable material uh, pouch that houses the refills. You just kind of refill your jar. Um, but really, you know, and, and then even our box, our shipping box comes from a material that we, we developed with a company in Italy that um, actually takes the algae from the toxic blooms in the Venice canals uh, and repurposes it into paper. So our um, our box is recyclable, made made from algae paper. Uh, you know, a lot of people use styrofoam or other um, more or less sustainable materials for what, especially if you need to ship glass. And so uh, we work with this incredible material called paper foam that literally is like light as a feather, but incredible. You can injection mold it, uh, which means that from industrial design perspective, you can create a lot of stability, but actually without the weight. Um, which of course also reduces fuel. Um, and then the material that I said we use in our packages, we, we use a corn foam that dissolves in water for insulation as well as uh, you could actually eat it uh, if you would like to. A lot of people do it and post it on Instagram. And then of course the refills themselves come in this material that's compostable. It composts down in about 90 to 120 days from our early, from our, from the tests that we've done so far. And we're, we're working on a few other materials too uh, for future products that we think are pretty novel and exciting. And then I'll let Raja speak a little bit about um, our probiotic for honeybees and one of our upcoming projects. Yeah, the honey, the honeybee stuff is just the highlight of my quarter. Every time we get new new data back, it was a cool project that actually emerged from our chief scientist, Dr. Gregory Reed's lab, who was very interested when he observed that the hindgut of the honeybee is has a very you know defined microbiome. And some of them are actually the same or, or genus of organisms that are in the human gut. And so he was curious if, if native honeybee lactobacillus could be protective to honeybees on exposure to pesticides. And so they found that these strains actually, some strains work to detoxify the pesticide response in honeybees. And then did two field trials, both now which are published that showed both uh, increased resistance to neonicotinoid pesticides which are kind of these nasty pesticides. Actually, if you if you give a bee an option to take sugar water or neonic pesticides, they'll go for the water with pesticides because it's so addictive. And so it just like pulls these bees in, disorients them, and then they actually get so disoriented they can't find their hive. So it's a pretty sick way to die. And then another uh, good good way they got data back was on a disease called the American Falbrood disease, which is an infection that happens to bees in the first three or four days of life and showed that that survival rate was so much higher in the hives that were treated with the probiotic than the ones that got the infection. Actually, the infection is so crazy that you have to torch the entire hive if you find it. 
um, so that it doesn't spread to other hives. And so um, this was a great, great probiotic where we developed a spray for it, for it as well as a bio patty and are working to distribute them to beekeepers and get them out into, into more applications of, of field use. So it, was, uh, it, it won a lot of awards. It was up for uh, Innovation of the Year at Time Magazine and won a World Changing Ideas Award at Fast Company. And so we're really proud of that work. So amazing. Our next project, which will probably be announced by the time... I don't know if it'll be announced, but if it's not by the time this podcast airs, then everyone has to keep quiet. But we're working on the coral microbiome. And so it was... uh, you know, Coral reefs make up about 1% of the total ocean, but over a quarter of all life is within those reef ecosystems. And so if coral go... Yes, it's very cool that... MIT is working on synthetic reefs, but like as a big scuba diver, just, there's some things that are sacred to me. And it's just like, it's not about the structure, you know, it's, yeah. it's the coral. Um, it's a, it's a living, it's, it's the first form of, it's, it's one of the earliest examples of symbiosis because they, they have an obligatory relationship with their microorganisms. So we have a preferred relationship, but they have an, an obligatory, well, I would argue that we have a preferred, but potentially obligatory as well, but they definitely have an obligatory relationship. So if you get rid of their, or- if they're actually when coral bleach is when their microorganisms jump, ship, they bail. So they expel. And then it's just a matter of time once those organisms are expelled, expulsed, expelled. It works. Expelled <laughs> that the coral die. And so this was a research project that was with collaborators in Brazil, Australia, uh, as well as in Hawaii that with the observation that there's a, a very thermoresilient coral that they found in Hawaii that when you transplant the, the microbes from them and use them as probiotics for other vulnerable coral in the Red Sea, that increase their, you maintain their rate of skeletal structure growth, their resistance without bleaching to changing water temperatures. Their resistance without bleaching to changing pH, which is the side companion. It's the sidekick of global warming, pH changes. And so uh, our collaborator there is a, a wonderful scientist, scientist uh, by the name of Dr. Pichotto. And the paper's coming out in the journal Science Advances in you know, anytime in the next few weeks. And so we're actually in the process right now of getting giant tanks set up on site in New York City, in Manhattan in the Wheel Cornell School of Medicine's transcriptomics research lab to run our next wave of experiments. And I'll personally be overseeing that. That's going to be amazing. Yes. That'll be so fun. Well, what else is coming down the... I feel like you've given me a lot. How can you do any more work, to be honest with you? I feel like you guys are the... Oh, you just wait. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's... yeah, we have some fun stuff for the summer that we're that we're that we're planning, and all the way through through the end of the year that we'll of course love to share with you and your community. And I think we we what, we have some follow ups to our AI that can diagnose poop. Um, so we'll we'll uh, we'll definitely keep you posted and um, some fun things that are launching in the, the next few months. In addition to our products, we'll just give people a taste of what the AI poop diagnosis is before we go, so that oh, they sure. <laughs> can upload their poop. I can't believe I can't believe we're going from coral and ending on this, but uh, we'll, we'll hopefully give you some one big expansive moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, mo- uh, the mo- poop is kind of characterized in in research and in, in a clinical setting by the Bristol stool chart, uh, which um, breaks it down into seven distinct types. 
Um, if you Google quickly the Bristol stool chart, you'll see varying animated versions uh, that go from like little hard rock pebbles all the way to puddles uh, and everything in between. And so we we trained last year, we um, did this big citizen science initiative to crowdsource the largest image stool base of um, poop images that people sent from around the world. Uh, and what that did was allow us to train uh, an AI that can now, through an iPhone image, diagnose, or I should say not diagnose, type uh, or characterize any poop image uh, just off of an image, which used, you know, used to have, to have to happen off of sampling uh, other more like higher friction ways of doing it in a clinical setting. And so, um, and, and actually is about, you know, more accurate by about 20% than like, you know, human human kind of continued diagnosis. And so we're really excited. We're building it into like a little SMS bot that you can just text a photo anytime, uh, get a real-time type of your stool, of your poop. Uh, I imagine we'll get all kinds of images of people playing, trying to play tricks on our bot. But uh, but we're excited about that. And obviously just a, a kind of a, a one step in the direction of a lot of the digital health initiatives we're starting to think about, not just you know the research and applications that Raja kind of uh, you know expounded on, but also the ways that, you know, as we think about um, impacting GI health and, and other areas of the body and, and diagnostics and, and where a lot of this field is heading. And I know, Kelly, you do a lot of testing too. You know, I'm sure you're paying attention to the fact that so many of these different biomarkers are now going to start to converge. And obviously we're going to have these huge data sets um, and there's going to be like really interesting applications of that in the future. So this is just kind of our a first, uh, you know, expression, but obviously of, of a larger roadmap that we're, that we're really thinking about on the digital health side too. I love it. Your hands, I feel like your hands and your feet are in every little bucket and pot making things happen, (laughs) making things happen all over the world with microbes. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm super excited for anyone listening who has dealt with transit time issues, constipation, who drinks too much friends. This is (laughs) like, this is uh, survivability and a probiotic that gets to the gut with that supports intestinal permeability you know, protects against it is so, so important. So I'm going to put all the links in the show notes. I'll make sure everyone can find you guys, but where, where can they follow along if they're looking to follow along? Sure. Um, well, if you want to learn more about our products, it's seed.com, particularly about our daily symbiotic um, and any other, lots of good information and education there. And then at seed on Instagram, And uh, for anyone who is interested in our partner program at Seed University on Instagram. Love it. Thanks guys. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 